welcome to my summer book club. I've never done this before. I'm going to do three books this morning. And when you read a book, it takes you somewhere. As a matter of fact, I have a sign in my office right above where I work. You discover you have wings when you open a book. You discover you have wings when you open a book. Books take us somewhere. They, they try to say something that can speak into our hearts and our minds and sometimes our souls. When I was a kid, I was uh, in the summer reading program at the library. I spent a lot of time in the library. I loved the library. My goal was to have my own library someday, and, and I sort of have that. Here's just a little quick peek at one little sliver of my library. I have tons of books, and I have tons of baseballs in my office. I have po poetry books, and I have there's, there's a whole shelf of sports books that's uh, very special to me. Uh, books about theology, books about prayer, commentaries to help me understand scripture. So I have my own little library upstairs. That's just one little sliver of it. All these books here come from a lot, my library. And uh, a couple years ago, uh, actually five years ago, I got to write and publish a book. My book is called Altitude, Your Next Move Changes Everything. And there's somebody here who does not have my book and you're gonna get a gift right now. Who doesn't have my book and wants to get it? The first person up here gets it. Uh, the first person. All right, you got it. Okay, the book absolutely is free. And after the service, I'll sign it for 20 bucks. Okay. There's more out at the information center if you want to stop out there. Uh, I tried to put eight key moves for the Christian life in that book. Uh, and there's a, there's a study section, so if you want to read it with a few other people. And there are my letters to God, so I tried to, to pack it all into altitude. Your next move changes everything. When I read, sometimes I come across fun stuff, and I came across some fun stuff this morning. Uh, actually, a friend of mine gave this to me this earlier this morning. Uh, this is just for fun. It's just for fun, okay? There are three good arguments that Jesus was Italian. Three good arguments that Jesus was Italian. Number one, he talked with his hands. Number two, he had wine with his meals. Number three, he used olive oil a lot, okay? Uh, and then this, this is the funny part here. Uh, but the most compelling evidence of all, there are three proofs that Jesus was a woman. First, he fed a crowd at a moment's notice when there was virtually no food. <laughs> Second, he kept trying to get a message across to a bunch of men who just didn't get it. <laughs> Third, and even when he was dead, he had to get up because there was still work to do. Wait what? And life's other essential questions. Wait what? And life's other essential questions by James E. Ryan. He's dean of Harvard's Graduate School of Education. He used to teach law at UVA. And there's something very interesting about his life. And you're going to find out about that in just a few minutes because that's the first book that I'm going to get into. The second book we're going to look at is Louis Giglio's not forsaken. And uh, it says, Finding Freedom as Sons and Daughters of a Perfect Father. So uh, his book is more theological, 
Uh, you're going to get a lot of scriptural connection in the book. Each one of these authors is a Christian. Each one of these authors uh, gives their, their hearts and their minds and their lives to Jesus Christ, and that's what identifies their life and anchors their life. Uh, I saw a, a video yesterday with Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz was the famous football coach, uh, and he was at Notre Dame for a bunch of years, went to seven straight bowl games, never been done uh, since. And he, um, he said at the very end of his, his commencement speech, the most important thing in his life was that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. So each one of these authors follows Christ, uh, not forsaken, great book, going to get into it in a second. And then T.D. Jake's Crushing. God turns pressure into power. God turns pressure into power. And he's very vulnerable and very honest and very real in this book. And he takes us into the very crushing of his own life and makes great analogies to the crushings that we all experience in our lives today. I'm going to begin with Isaiah chapter 41, verses 10 to 13. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing, as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. Why? Why? For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Takes hold of our right hand and says, do not fear, I will help you. From Genesis to Revelation, do not fear appears 48 times. And to not fear, we need three things in our lives. We need the right information, we need the right direction, and we need the right person. The right person with a capital P is always God. For God must be the preeminent relationship in our lives. God must be the, the person we turn to from the moment we wake to the moment we sleep. God must be there holding our right hand, guiding us along. He is the preeminent relationship in our lives. And he gave us Jesus Christ so that we knew, know what he looks like, what he thinks like, what he feels, what are the most important things for us to know. And so life is a constant integration of the right information, the right direction, and building our lives upon the right person. God will always use his word. Along with that relationship, his word is the most preeminent book in our lives. The Bible is what I rely upon as a primary foundation for building my life, for thinking the right things and moving in the right direction. Sometimes, however, God will use a sign. 
Sometimes God will surprise us with a light in the darkness. And sometimes that sign can be a book. Maybe it will be all three for you this morning. His word, one of these books, and a person. Because he's going to show up in your life today. And I hope that it is all three this morning. You see, good books have always changed my life. They have shifted my perspective. They have asked me the hard questions. God has used the sharp-edged wisdom of men and women to chisel at my soul. To chisel at my soul. So here we go. Wait what? Wait what? And life's other essential questions by James Ryan, dean of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. So he begins with these five questions. Wait, what? I wonder, couldn't we at least? How can I help? And what truly matters? He says, many of us spend too much time worrying about having the right answers. His whole book is based upon having the right questions. This is not to say that answers are irrelevant or unimportant. Instead, it is to suggest that questions are just as important as answers, often more so. Often more so. And then here's our, here's our connection, my connection to James E. Ryan, because I'm reading this book and I read this book. I found this book because of my sister who told me that he spoke at the high school for their graduation this year, where I grew up, same high school I went to. He writes, I grew up in Midland Park. That's where I grew up. He grew up in Midland Park, a blue collar town in northern New Jersey, which was filled with plumbers, electricians, and landscapers. It was surrounded by wealthier suburbs whose homeowners employed the plumbers, electricians, and landscapers from Midland Park. Our grocery store was the A&P on the border of Midland Park and a wealthy neighbor, neighboring town, which was Ridgewood, New Jersey. So that's where I went. To, that's where we went to to get groceries. The A&P. I stood in line there often with coupons that my dad put in my hand and sent me through line. Said, "We'll meet at the car. We'll we'll get some more coupons. We'll go back in. We'll circle back in, and we'll clear the shelves of olive oil." Okay, so we would we would do that a lot. Um, he put he writes it this way at the very end of this sort of introduction. When I was in elementary school, our school custodian had a huge key ring hanging from his belt. The keys fascinated me in part because they seemed to outnumber the doors in our elementary school, or at least the doors that you could see as a student. There's the elementary school that I went to. There was the Godwin School and the Highland School. And actually in the summertime, I was the custodian in the Godwin School. So I had the keys. I thought the custodian was the most powerful person in school because he had all the keys. To me, keys signaled power. Questions are like keys. The right question asked at the right time will open a door to something you don't yet know, something you haven't yet realized, or something you haven't even considered about others and about yourself. What I am suggesting is that the five questions that follow are like five crucial keys on a key ring. While you'll certainly need other keys from time to time, you'll never want to be without these five. Chapter one, wait, 
what? Wait, what? It is especially worth remembering in difficult situations, whether at home or at work, when faced with difficult conversations or emotionally charged situations, it is always a challenge to pause to ask if you have all the facts you need to draw fair conclusions. It is easy, too easy, simply to react, often passionately and often based on assumptions rather than facts. You have done that. I have done that. We've all done that. Reminding yourself to ask, wait, what? is a way to guard against jumping too quickly to conclusions. Asking, wait, what? Not only helps clarify your own thinking, it can also help others do the same. Wait, what is such a strategic question that can be applied in the mundane areas of our lives, when we're getting up in the morning to go to work or to go to school, or when we're going on a vacation, or when we're at a meeting and something comes up in the meeting and we're not sure we understand, we can go, wait, what is the really most important thing that we're supposed to do at this meeting? It's got great application to everything that we do, and yet it's so simple. Wait, what? Chapter two is, I wonder, and he has a quote from Einstein. Albert Einstein, in a classic humble brag, once remarked, I have no special talents. I am only passionately curious. The first half of that statement was surely false, while the second half was undoubtedly true. Einstein was passionately curious about the world around him, both seen and unseen. The important thing, he observed, is, not, is to not stop questioning and then this little phrase that I love, never lose a holy curiosity. That's Einstein's statement. Never lose a holy curiosity. Curiosity begins with asking, I wonder why. I wonder why this is happening. I wonder why this is taking place. I wonder why our group is kind of moving in this direction. Or I wonder why this is happening at church. Or I wonder why uh, our family seems a little bit disconnected this summer. I wonder why. Curiosity begins with asking, I wonder why. Never lose a holy curiosity. And when you never lose a holy curiosity, it drives the edge of your life. It drives it. Wait, what? I wonder why these simple questions are life's most essential questions. They're like keys that help you to open the right doors. Chapter three, couldn't we at least, this is my favorite chapter. This is so powerful. Couldn't we at least, couldn't we at least forms the core of a series of questions rather than one specific and complete question. Couldn't we at least is a good way to get unstuck. It is a way to get past disagreement to form some consensus as in, couldn't we at least agree? To begin asking, couldn't we at least agree is a way to find common ground. The key to maintaining healthy and productive relationships is consensus, whether in politics, business, marriage, or friendship. Couldn't we at least agree, especially in the midst of an argument, is a good way to pause, step back, and look for some areas of agreement. Ryan clerked for Chief Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist 
at the Supreme Court uh, while he was an intern, a law intern. And Rehnquist was a little bit different than the other Supreme Court justices who would get their reports in written form and then pour over them and read them and, and kind of try to understand the, the expansiveness of the issue and where they were gonna come down in the, in the issue. But Rehnquist would say, let's go for a walk. And so James Ryan would walk with Chief Justice Rehnquist around the Supreme Court building. It takes about 20 minutes to do that. And he would, during that time, Rehnquist would ask him lots of questions about what was happening. And he would ask, wait, what questions? And he would ask, I wonder questions. And he would ask questions that would get him to where he could say, couldn't we at least? And it's just a fascinating question in so many facets. This is how that chapter ends. Because it helps break log jams, whether created by disagreement, fear, procrastination, or lethargy, and whether created by external obstacles or internal ones, the question, couldn't we at least, sparks movement. It is the question that also recognizes that journeys are often long and uncertain, that problems will not be solved with one conversation, and that even the best efforts will not always work. At the same time, however, it is the question that recognizes you have to begin somewhere. It is the question that nudges you and others to the starting line. Let me go back to that previous sentence. It is the question that recognizes you have to begin somewhere. And in my brain, a little word gets attached to that. It is the question that recognizes you have to begin somewhere again. And maybe there's somewhere again after that. Maybe there's somewhere again after that. Couldn't we at least agree? It is the question that nudges you and others to the starting line. It's a, it's a fantastic chapter. How can I help? Simple question, but amazing and profound in its simplicity. I'm just gonna go to the last page in that chapter. How can I help is an essential question. It is the question that forms the base of all good relationships. It is a question that signals that you care. It signals a willingness to help, but it also signals respect, humility, and the likelihood that in the end, it is you who will be helped just as much. I wanted to help. And, uh, and so when a pastor in Norfolk asked me if I would help him by coming to speak on Friday night at an event in his church that was honoring him for 18 years of serving at that church, I said yes, because I wanted to help. How can, how can I help? He said, would you speak Friday night? And so this church that I went to on Friday night, St. Paul's Disciples of Christ, it's about as big as this section right here, or this section, or this section. And there's five short pews over here. There's five short pews over here. And I walked in, and there were five people on this side, and there were five people on this side. And there were two deacons over here. There was a worship leader over there. The pastor was there in one of those big pastor chairs. And he motioned for me to get in the biggest pastor chair. So I was in the big pastor chair in the middle. Whoa. Uh, 
And I, I, I looked out and I thought to myself, this is like the smallest group in a congregation that I have ever spoken to in my life. I was wearing my pastoral black suit with my new pastoral tie that I bought for the occasion. Um, I was ready to like fire up and go. Uh, what I didn't understand and what I didn't realize as I first sat down in the big pastor chair was God was about to bless me more than I could ever hope to bless them. Um, the, the worship leader got up to sing a special feature and she sang it with such passion that when she was done, she was bawling. I mean bawling. I mean out loud, you know, like agonizingly crying uh, and she couldn't stop. And it was just like this huge moment of realizing that she had brought us into the very presence of what God was doing right there in that moment. And she kept on crying. She didn't stop. and She wasn't going to like stifle it or try to force it. She just kept going. And the pastor looked at me. He says, it's your time. I was like, I'm not going up there. I pointed at her. I need to give her her due. Uh, I needed something. I forgot something out of my car. Like I just thought I lost my notes. It's sort of a theme of my life. And I called one of the deacons. I said, would you run out to my car and get there's a white envelope on the on the front seat because I wanted to give this picture to everybody. So he, he did that. Uh, the pastor was very gracious. So here I am, five people over here, five people over here. And I get the biggest blessing of all. People came up and thanked me afterwards. God just filled me up. I was so touched by their faith. I was so touched by their worship. I was so touched by their passion to be everything that God wanted them to be. This little church is right around the corner from Jaycox Elementary School. And that's the, the, the school that we're giving all, all these backpacks to. We're trying to do 200 backpacks. So if you didn't bring a backpack today, you bring it next week. Or if you just want to make it simple, just go out and make a donation for a backpack. But we got to do this. We got to get this done. This is, and you get more of the blessing than the kid with the backpack. The last question, what truly matters? The fifth and final essential question asks, what truly matters? This is the question that can just as effectively guide you through a meeting with colleagues as it can guide you through the biggest decisions in your life. It forces you to get to the heart of issues at work or school and to the heart of your own convictions, beliefs, and goals in life. It's the question that can help you separate the truly important from the trivial. It can help you maneuver through the minutia to the, in pursuit of the momentous. It can help you maneuver through the minutia in pursuit of the momentous. From the minutia in pursuit of the momentous. Somebody should write that down and stick it on the refrigerator when you get home. In pursuit of the momentous, what truly matters? He closes the book. You should ask this question of yourself. You should answer it honestly and fearlessly. If you do, this question won't just help you 
get to the bottom of an issue or a problem. It will also help you get to the heart of your life. Wait what? And life's other essential questions. It's a book I heartily recommend to you, and you will be blessed more than you know by reading it. He went to the same church I went to when I was growing up, same high school, and God's really touched his heart in a special way. We're going to do Louis Giglio, Not Forsaken, next. But it's also worth remembering that faith is very different from religion. I mean, who doesn't meet people who don't want religion? I certainly never did. But the irony is this, is that nor did Jesus. And when it comes to quietly bowing that knee and asking for this presence that Jesus has always brought to people to bring peace and to like strengthen my spirit. Well, I've always felt I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. And that to me is what faith is about. Louis Giglio's book, Not Forsaken, is a very biblically grounded book. Uh, you're going to get you know, tons of reference to scripture. It's a book that was written for a specific purpose. Let me tell you what that purpose is. He wants you to know that the primal craving in our lives is for a father. He writes, this book is for everyone who has a father and for all those who know what it's like to long for a father's blessing, a father's approval, affection, and attention. Maybe that blessing has been there in your life, but maybe it hasn't. That longing is unquestionably there when we're growing up, yet that longing is still there when we're older too, even though it may show up in different and more complex ways. And so everybody has a father, some of that, that was supposed to happen, maybe didn't happen, some did, maybe some didn't. And, and maybe sometimes we get stuck in that relationship as adults and we're still trying to sort it out or figure it out. And sometimes our father has passed away and we're still trying to sort it out or figure it out. And so he's writing this book into your, your primal desire to have a father who loves you unconditionally and accepts you and is there for you. And of course that father is God. He's gonna make that argument all the way through the book. He says, the most important thing about you. The desire for a father's blessing is one of the most powerful forces in our lives. And the whole point of this book is to help you find freedom as you come to experience God as a perfect heavenly father. But there's something even more powerful, more essential, more central to who we are that we need to explore together first. It lays the groundwork for our heavenly father's blessing. And I'd venture to say it's the most important thing about any person, including you. It's not where you're from. It's not your level of education. It's not what other people think about you. It's not even what you think about yourself. It's not what kind of family you have. It's not what your gifts and abilities are. It's not what you've overcome. It's not what you own or don't own. It's not what you've done or haven't done. It's not your personality type. It's not your looks, your smarts, your friends, or your clout. It's not your wins or your losses. Nope. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. He talks about the number one image of God that Jesus Christ shows us all 
is. It's not that God is a king. It's not that he's the ruler of the universe. It's not, not that he's the God of justice. It's not that he's the Alpha and the Omega. It's not that he's the rock, the God of faithfulness and steadfastness. It's not that God is the hope of eternal life. It's not that he's immortal, invisible, the only wise God. It's not that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's not that he's a merciful God. It's not that he's the Logos, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not that he's the great I am. It's not that he's the Lord and God of Israel. It's not that he's the Lord of hosts. It's not that he's our redeemer. It's not that he's a mighty warrior. It's not that he's the owner of, a, of the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not that he's light. It's not that he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. It's not that he's the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. It's not even that he's love. God is not primarily any one of these things alone. And this gets straight to the heart of what I want to focus on. To be clear, God is all of those images and realities in the above list. All those images and realities come straight from scripture and all are true about God. Yet none of those are emphasized by Jesus as often as something else. Jesus repeats it over and over and drives this characteristic of God into our souls, the number one image of God that Jesus draws for us again and again is this. God is Father. God is Father. He talks about the cross. He says, as your eyes are opened to see the cross, several key truths about the work Jesus did on the cross will help sustain you in the darkest times, and I encourage you to meditate on these. One, the cross of Christ will reinforce that God loves you. God the Father loves you. Second, the cross of Christ is the place that allows you to know that God understands your pain. Third, the cross of, the cross of Christ is proof that God can take the worst and bring something good from it. And then the whole book, the whole book is worth this one story. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it would be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. And so I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know. They couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let's... Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve, and within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. Let me tell you, you women understand. You don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, 
he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. My father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our brokenness, our failure, our pain, and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open to you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. Hear these words. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So, as Paul writes to the early church at Ephesus, he says, we're all families. We need a father. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you want to know how God is your Father at a deeper level, then take a look at not forsaken. T.D. Jakes wrote the book Crushing. And he was very vulnerable. He talked about the crushing times in his own life. He talked about the crushing moment when his young daughter came and said, Daddy, I'm pregnant. Mom, I'm pregnant. And how they would have to gather and deal with that as a family. He talked about what, what came out of that time. He talked about a time in his early ministry when uh, he really had nothing and just that God put a call on his life to, to be a pastor. And so he details crushing after crushing after crushing. But he says, here is the defining moment of understanding crushing in our lives. He calls it a vintage transformation because he uses the terminology that God's making new wine. On one hand, God's purpose is requiring you to step boldly, boldly into your future. On the other hand, sits the crushing of the accomplishments of your life that you worked and toiled tirelessly to produce. It is the play between these two that compels me to have this conversation with you. Just like my daughter in that fateful revelation of her unplanned pregnancy, is it possible, a prerequisite even, that each person who dares embrace their future is also called to endure a season of trial and pain. What if there is truly more to our sufferings than what we see? If you're anything like me, maybe you have discovered the disquieting and dreadful places of crushing in life move us along from one stage to the next. We may not like to admit it, but what if our crushing is necessary in order for our potential to be fulfilled? Take a look at this clip from Lisa Turkhurst, who understands crushing. You see, it's one thing if your life gets broken and you look around and there's broken pieces because you can pick the pieces back up and you can glue them back together, right? And then we Christians love to just slap a little saying on it like, God will shine through your cracked places, right? And it's just like, that feels really good to say unless you're the one being cracked wide open, right? But what do you do when your life has been shattered, not just in broken pieces, but you look around and you see nothing but dust? 
You can't glue dust back together. But here's the hope. Dust is the very ingredient that God loves to use. God could, he took dust and he breathed into it in the story in Genesis. And from that dust, he formed man. Jesus spit on the ground and mixed his spit with some dust and then picked it up and rubbed it on the blind man's eyes and the blind man could then see again. Dust, when mixed with water, dust when mixed with God's living water, it can form clay. And that clay, God calls himself the potter. And, and from that clay, God the potter, the great potter, he can make anything from it. You see, dust is a great sign that new is just on the horizon. And that's how Jesus, I believe, is able to utter the next nine earth-shaking, hell-shattering, demon-quaking words. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. God, you know things that my flesh right now cannot possibly even know. And on the other side of this dust, there will be a resurrection that I cannot see, but I will stand on the reality that my God and his will is the best. And don't we all have to kind of come to that kind of precipice, that kind of, that kind of crucible where we have to step inside the difficult situations that we all face? And we have to declare at some moment, my will or thy will. And that's really the ultimate decision we must make. Not just one time in our salvation decision, but every single dadgum day. Every single dadgum day. One of the most spiritual things I've heard in a while. Not my will, but thy will be done. Let me summarize Jake's in his chapter where he talks about holy hide and seek. Holy hide and seek. God has promised that we will find him if, if we seek him, Jeremiah 29, 13. From all my years of actively pursuing God, though, I've discovered that he loves to play hide and seek. He doesn't always hide in the most obvious places, but he leaves a trail of spiritual breadcrumbs for us to follow when he's chosen an out-of-the-way place in which to conceal himself. God is easily spotted during our joyous seasons, but it often seems as if he's an expert at tucking himself away in the most obscure locations during our trying times. Could it be, however, that God hasn't hidden himself during our tumultuous, tumultuous seasons, but rather he has simply revealed himself in a form we've yet to recognize. The disciples had to deal with this. Before we criticize their reluctance to recognize him, we might look first at our own ability to spot God in our lives. Tell me, can you recognize God in another form or must he always reveal himself to you through the construct of your familiarity? You know, sometimes we put God in this little box and he's, it's got to always do it this way. And sometimes God is saying, you are going to have to figure this out. I'm going to be there down this little trail, but you're going to have to keep moving every single dadgum day. And then you'll recognize me and I'll be there. Jake's ends. 
I'm thoroughly convinced that God made me who I am in the low places of my life. It's the nights that I cried myself to sleep and my tears crawled across the bridge of my nose that God most often used to develop me into the person I am today. It was the hidden things in the valleys that God used to kill off my fleshly desires and strip me from everything that would prevent me from being his wine. I had to learn not to fear my valley experiences, but to accept them. And that process continues, and I believe you must do the same. You want the, the great questions to ask? Then read, wait what? by James Ryan. You want to know that God's your father and that he's always there for you in a, in a way that sometimes you're, you're not going to understand, but he is there for you? Then read Louis Giglio's Not Forsaken. You want to know the details of a life being crushed so you can see yourself in the life of T.D. Jakes? Then read Crushing, God Turns Pressure into Power. Paul wrote it this way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry about in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand, for I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, when he says that, it's a picture of a father taking hold of a child's hand. Maybe you've done that with your own child. Maybe you've done that with a niece or a nephew, a grandchild recently, takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Good books have always changed my life, shifted my perspective and asked me the hard questions. God has used the sharp-edged wisdom of men and women to chisel at my soul. So maybe your soul has been chiseled at some today. Maybe by a passage of scripture, you're, you're being more defined to look like Jesus Christ. Maybe by an insight from one of these books, God is nudging you in a new direction. Maybe by something I shared with you, you have heard God speak into your life, something you really needed to know. And this is what life is about, friends. It's about bringing faith and life together. It's about doing that together like we do on a Sunday morning. It's about knowing that even though there's holy hide and seek, even though there's moments when we go, wait, what? 
even though there's moments when we need the embrace of a father, we are blessed because of the love of the Father in Jesus Christ who meets us today right where we are. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for your wisdom to permeate each and everyone's heart, mind, and soul today. I pray you'll guide us and bless us as we walk this journey. The answers aren't always easy to come by, and sometimes we have to start over and over and over again to get back to that starting line. But illuminate us with your grace. Wrap us in your unconditional love. Father, show us the path to the kingdom and the glory and the power. We give our lives again to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.